The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded. Because of this, the participation of the classroom cannot be heard. When someone asks a question or makes a comment, there will be a brief break in the audio. Once the question or comment is finished, the lecturer will begin speaking again. Thank you for understanding, and we hope you enjoy the message. All right, so you all saw the, uh, the new series that we're going to be doing during our Wednesday night seminar time. We're calling it Proving Christianity, and I am very excited about this uh, series personally. Um, I'm excited because I think it's going to be very encouraging for you, and I think it's going to be very empowering as well. Um, and I'm confident that you're going to be uh, really blessed by this spiritually. Um, not only for you, not only do I hope uh, this will strengthen your faith, as we go through this over the next several weeks, but I hope that it'll be a blessing to those in your life as you take the things that we learn and use it to minister better to them. So there's different ways to teach apologetics. I kind of alluded to this uh, in the email that I sent out. Um, you, can teach, you can teach about apologetics in an academic fashion where you kind of look at the development of different arguments throughout history and you, uh, you discuss all the various objections to those arguments and how Christians have responded to them and, and, uh, and you kind of do a large survey or swath of the arguments that are in use today and the relevant philosophical uh, discussions that are surrounding those, uh, those various objections and arguments. Um, we're not going to be teaching it like that. We're going to be discussing some of the things that are, are pertinent and important to us for our goal, but our primary goal in, uh, in this session is to teach apologetics for practical purposes. Now, practical does not mean light. I don't want to, to give that impression. Um, you will hopefully, not hopefully, you will learn things in this class. You will be challenged in this class. Um, but practical means that our goal for you is to not just walk out of here with a greater familiarity uh, with you know, the, the field of apologetics in general, um, but to walk out of here after the, after the next eight weeks with certain abilities. Specifically, we want you to be able to prove that God exists to people, to prove that God exists in a very compelling and persuasive way. We also want you to be able to prove that Christianity is true, and we want you to be able to do so without recourse to any notes or any other resource, to be able to do so off the top of your head. So we're going to need to uh, spend time during uh, our sessions giving you an opportunity to internalize these concepts because we want you to be able to explain uh, important, important truths on your own, uh, to be able to recognize certain logical fallacies when you see them, and then to defend the truth and to present effective arguments in ways that are really winsome and wise uh, with people. So uh, that ability focus, focusing on, on, uh, on equipping you with these certain skill sets, that's part of what is going to make this, uh, this teaching series a ton of fun. Um, we're going to be uh, taking pauses uh, throughout the session. You'll see we'll, we'll be doing this tonight too, to give you a chance to exercise uh, some of the newfound knowledge that hopefully you'll be gleaning through this, uh, through our time together, and to really try to memorize and internalize some of the information that we're sharing so it doesn't just uh, go in uh, one ear and come out the other. Um, you got an email today, I, uh, earlier today, hopefully you saw it. I requested that everyone bring an electronic device. We're going to be doing a couple live interactive uh, game quizzes, kind of, in, in class. Uh, which will be fun, and we'll also be reviewing what we've learned throughout the course. So what we talked about tonight, we're going to be building on throughout, and, uh, and you'll also see, hopefully, did everyone get one of these handouts? Everyone have one of these? Okay. If you don't, uh, grab one of these. It has fill in the blanks for you to, uh, to write in as we're going along, and it'll help you take notes uh, on, uh, on the various topics we'll be discussing. Does everyone have pens too? Okay, good. Someone, someone found the pens, or maybe you guys brought your own pens. Perfect. All right, so uh, yeah, you'll want to keep notes on that because it'll be helpful for you later on. Um, you'll want to kind of track on these handouts and, and fill them in as we go. Um, so 
That said, uh, this is not uh, the type of class where we'll come and we'll be kind of sitting back and, uh, and taking things easy, kind of listening to the information as it comes. Uh, it's going to require us to get our hands dirty. It'll require us to, to think, to be engaged, um, and hopefully by God's grace really grow and come out of this class uh, better apologists. Um, that's the goal that we want. We're doing this because we want every single one of us, every single member here at CCC, Christ Community Church, we want every single member here to be uh, a great apologist, uh, to be able to defend uh, and, and argue for the faith that we hold to very, very well. Now, I'm going to be drawing from a variety of different sources in this class. Occasionally, I'll, re I'll reference them explicitly, uh, but it would take too much time to cite everything as I go along. So some of the ideas or language you may hear may be coming from scholars like William Lane Craig, uh, Stephen Davis, Norman Geisler, Frank Turek, uh, my Christian philosophy uh, class in seminary, which was taught by John Wilsey, among other <coughs> scholars, philosophers, apologists we'll be drawing from. All right. Um, I'm going to talk more about what apologetics is and why it's useful a little bit later. We're actually going to jump into this topic from a different angle. But before I do that, let's go to the Lord in, in prayer and ask that you would bless this time. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to come and to discuss your truth. We pray that you would be glorified in this time of study tonight. Help us to better understand how to defend the truth that you have made known to us by your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be able to do this for the sake of those in our lives who don't know you. We have so many people, Lord, that we love, that we want, we want them to see the truthfulness of your gospel, and we pray that you would help us to become more effective at, uh, at, at persuading them of, uh, of the truth of your word. We pray also that you would strengthen our faith as we go through this series, that you would help us to become even more confident in the things that we already know and believe to be true, and that as a result of becoming more confident in these, that our faith in you would be increased, and that everything that results from our faith in you, our obedience to you and our life of service, would also be, uh, would also be grown and strengthened. Lord, we pray these things for your glory. We pray it out of your love for us. Give us clarity during this time. Help us to, uh, help us to, to think well, to engage well, uh, to remember and internalize the information that we discussed tonight. Uh, and by your grace to, to, to be sanctified, to become more conformed to your image, uh, and to become better apologists as we talked about. That is what we desire for each of us. Uh, it's part of our calling in your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would make us, uh, you, would, you would equip us and make us more effective at ministering your truth to others. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Good evening, guys. We have a couple of handouts here for you. No, maybe take these, take these back there for Bill and Sonia. All right, so I'm not going to talk about apologetics yet. We're going to get to that, but we're going to start talking about this from a different angle, from a little bit different angle. I want to start by asking this question, and before you answer, I just want you to take 30 seconds on your own to answer this in your mind or to write it down on a piece of paper if that helps. 30 seconds to answer this on your own. Are you ready? Yes. What does faith have to do with reason. What does faith have to do with reason? You have 30 seconds. 25. I'm, just, I'm not going to do that. 
All right. That was plenty of time to answer a very deep and difficult question. What are your thoughts? It's a lot of thoughts. Oh, sorry. Mom. Okay. So you need to have faith in order to reason well. Gotcha. Understand the truth of our faith to reason well. Gotcha. Sorry if I'm repeating things too. It's, this is being recorded uh, for anyone later and, uh, and for a few people like, um, uh, for a few people that aren't able to come uh, being live streamed too. So if I'm repeating, I'm not trying to be annoying. Yes, sir. Okay. So you should have a reason for, for what we believe. Brandon? So faith and reason are inseparable. Yeah, Renata. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah, so to reason through the scriptures to work through issues. Good. So there are different ways of understanding this, and not all theologians today or throughout church history have agreed on the relationship between faith and reason. I'm going to share with you what I think is the correct view. Um, But part of this has to do with how you define faith and how you define reason. Let's do faith first. What is faith? How would you define faith biblically? I can almost guarantee you the way I'm going to define it in just a second is not how you would expect. But what do you think? What is faith? Okay, trusting in something you can't see. You're supposed to raise your hand, Sarah. I'm kidding. I always look at you. No. Belief in God and His Word. Okay. Wow, you guess you. Oh, you're looking at the spaces. That's not fair. Man, okay, well, that comes later. Well, you're pretty close. You're pretty close. Not perfect. Not pretty close. You're perfect in other ways. What is faith? All right, you ready? Faith is furry. Faith, I told you, you wouldn't expect it. Faith is a cat. It is a furry cat. This is to help you remember something important, of course, and I'm going to show you what that is in just a second. Sometimes people say curiosity killed the cat. Sometimes people say curiosity killed their faith. That's not a good thing. If you're genuinely curious, it should lead to curing your faith, growing your faith. But faith, I'm going to tell you, is a furry cat in the sense that it's made up of three ingredients, C, A, and T. The first ingredient in biblical faith Oh, that's a nice pen. It's what we might call comprehension. This is a thought cloud. By the way, 
this image is on your handout. So write a C beneath that, and then beneath the C, write comprehension, which of course is what the C stands for. Comprehension. There's certain, there's certain truth claims that have to be comprehended, that have to be understood. Romans 10, verses 14 and 17. Listen to what Paul says. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Verse 17, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In other words, someone can't have biblical faith unless they hear about the person in whom they're supposed to believe. They have to have an understanding of the person that they're supposed to believe in and the things that they're supposed to believe before they can believe in it, right? That makes sense. So comprehension is the first ingredient. William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland in their book, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, they refer to this comprehension as understanding the content of the Christian faith. Understanding the content of the Christian faith. These all have Latin words, by the way. What I'm sharing with you is nothing new. This is a, uh, a, uh, um, a relatively familiar understanding of, of biblical faith. Um, particularly, I think, uh, from the Reformation onward. I could be wrong on that historically. Um, but the Latin term for this particular piece is notitia, and we're calling it comprehension. Um, you can also use understanding. You have to understand the content of the faith. The next one is A. And A is agreement. So it's not enough just to comprehend the truth claims of Christianity you actually have to agree with them. Sometimes another word that's used is mental assent. It means to mentally agree with something. Where do we get this? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. The author of Hebrews says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So in order to draw near to God, you have to believe certain things. Obviously, you have to believe that God exists. And as the author of Hebrews says, you have to believe that God rewards those who seek him. So agreement, affirming certain things, is an essential ingredient of biblical faith. But is it sufficient? Is all we need comprehension of the truth and agreement with the truth? Is that all that's necessary for biblical faith? No, we know that's not the case. Some of the most terrifying words in the Bible come from Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, there are going to be people who come before Christ on that last day who agree that Jesus is Lord. They're calling him Lord. Perhaps they understand what that means. They're even agreeing with that reality. They're acknowledging and affirming the lordship of Christ, but they're not saved. That means that we can agree that Jesus is Lord. We can agree that God exists. We can agree that the Bible is God's word. We can agree that we're sinful and that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again from the dead and that by repenting and believing we can be saved. We can agree with all those things and still not be saved. And still not be saved. Why? Because there's another essential element that's missing. Anyone want to guess what that T stands for there? By the way, the Latin word for agreement is a census. Probably more literal translation would be mental assent, or that's, I don't know about translation, that's, that's another way that agreement is sometimes described. 
Um, but T, I, I thought I heard someone say, who, who said T? Trust. Yeah, there we go. Trust. Personal reliance. The Latin term here would be fiducia. Personal reliance on Christ. Let me write this. I have a heart here as a symbol for trust. Again, write these down. You're going to want this on your handout for future use. There you go. Spurgeon put it much more eloquently than, uh, than I could. He's talking about these three aspects of faith. Again, these aren't something novel. He uses the words knowledge, belief, and trust instead of comprehension, agreement, and trust. But he says this of trust. He says, quote, Trust is the lifeblood of faith. There is no saving faith without it. The Puritans were accustomed to explain faith by the word recumbency. It meant leaning upon a thing. Lean with all your weight upon Christ. It would be a better illustration still if I said, fall at full length and lie on the rock of ages. Cast yourself upon Jesus. Rest in him. Commit yourself to him. That done, you have exercised, exercised saving faith. Now listen to what he says next. He says, faith is not a, blind, not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. And it is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. That is one way of describing what faith is, Spurgeon says. Well put. In other words, we must respond to the truths that we agree with by trusting alone in Christ, personally relying on Christ, depending on him to save us. I think this is what Paul's getting at when he talks about calling on the name of the Lord in Romans chapter 10. You just heard it read, verse 13 again. Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be, will be saved. This is calling on the name of the Lord, crying out to Jesus, relying on Jesus, trusting in Jesus to save us. But as you heard earlier, verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed, agreement, can't call on someone you don't believe in. And how are they to believe, Paul says, in him of whom they have never heard? Comprehension. The content must be there. Craig and Moreland put it well. They said, belief in rests on belief that. Belief in Christ rests on belief that certain things are true. So, broadly, you can define faith as trust in anything. And that's the sense in which you can say that even unbelievers have faith. Everyone trusts in something, right? And typically it involves these three ingredients. They understand certain things. They agree that those things are true and they've put their trust in something. Uh, but when we're talking about biblical faith, faith in the context of Christianity, who or what is the primary object of our faith? It's God himself, right? He's the one that we're um, primarily focused on believing things about when we're talking about Christianity. And he's the one that we've put our trust and reliance in. And so the answer on your handout there, biblical faith is trust in God and trust in his word. Trust in God and his word. Obviously, if you trust in God, then you will trust in his word too. And biblical faith requires the other two ingredients in addition to trust. It also requires comprehension of the content of the faith and requires agreement with those truth claims. In other words, biblical faith is a cat. It is a furry cat. When you hear the word faith, I want you to think furry. Think C-A-T, comprehension, agreement, trust. Comprehension, agreement, trust, cat. 
Why are we doing silly things like this? It's because we want you to be able to walk away from this session and actually remember the things that we're talking about. I'm going to give you a chance in a little bit to sit here and to internalize this a little bit more. And hopefully the funny little furry faith thing will, uh, will stick with you and help you remember these essential ingredients. All right, we still have an answer to the question, though. What does faith have to do with reason? We have a better understanding of what faith is. Any questions on this? Any questions on this? If you have questions, ask, because someone else might have it, too. All right, so what is reason? Maybe you've never had to define that before. What is reason? How would you define it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, thinking through things you don't understand to come to a decision. Yeah. Yeah, so I have a dictionary definition on there for you. Um, We'll read it together. So reason, generally speaking, refers to, quote, the mental powers concerned with forming conclusions, judgments, or inferences. We're talking about the mental powers, the, the mental faculties that deal with forming conclusions, judgments, or inferences. So let me ask you this. How do we know what claims we should believe? We comprehend a number of different truth claims, but how do we know which ones we should give our mental agreement to? How do we know which claims we should believe? Tested against the word. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How about when we're, yeah, so test them against the word. That's true. Brandon? Okay, test if they're reasonable. Yeah, yeah, and that would be one of the way we, we test it, right? If we're being reasonable, then um, the, the Word of God is, is, uh, is the best source of, of, uh, of, of information to go when it comes to, to spiritual matters because it's revelation from God himself. Um, but the main idea is that we're, gonna, we're going to uh, use the mental powers that God has given us, the reason that he's given us, the ability to, to make judgments and to form conclusions, um, in order to determine which truth claims we should give our agreement to, which truth claims we should affirm. So you'll see a picture of a brain there. I like, I like the brain because it starts with B, and B, conveniently, it's a terrible picture of a brain, but let's pretend. B, conven- conveniently, comes in between, look at that, A and C. B comes in between A and C. What comes in between agreement and comprehension? Your brain, but of course it's not really your brain. What we're referring to by your brain is your reason, right? Your ability to reason. And I'm actually going to write reason underneath this. Reason is what we're putting underneath the B there. What's that? Resin. There you go. So we use our reason to determine which truth claims we should agree with, right? To discern and discover truth. It is the intermediary, the path from C to A. That's why it's B, it's in between C and A. And why should you mentally agree with something? Hopefully you mentally agree with something because there's truthful reasons for it. 
right, truthful reasons for it. You shouldn't agree with it if there's not truthful reasons for it, regardless of how it might appear, right? Even if it appears reasonable, if there's not actual, truthful, legitimate reasons that align with reality, you shouldn't believe in it. Um, so we should use our reason to discern what things to mentally agree with. Now, I want to be careful here. That is not to say that our reason is infallible, uh, especially um, with our desires enslaved to sin. We're far from unbiased in, uh, in, in, uh, in utilizing the rational faculties that God has given us, um, especially in spiritual matters. Uh, but that said, reason is one of the tools God has given us to discern and discover the truth. That's actually one of the blanks on your handout. Reason is one of the tools God has given us to discern and discover the truth. Now, what is a reason? We're talking about reason, generally speaking, um, with regards to our ability to, 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 to think in a rational manner. But what is a reason? You say, give me a reason for this. What are you saying? Give me a reason to believe this. What's a reason? An answer? Okay. Gotcha. There you go. Yeah, yeah, so it can take the form, and we'll talk about that in a second. Here's, here's the answer for your handout. A reason is a justification for a belief. A reason is a justification for a belief. It justifies your belief. A good reason, a truthful reason, provides sufficient grounds for your belief. Now, part of our ability to reason, part of our reasoning uh, powers include the ability to evaluate justifications for a belief, right? Not all justifications are, are good. There are some bad justifications to believe something, and there are some good justifications to believe something. There are some bad reasons for believing something, and there are some good reasons for believing something. Part of what it means to be a reasonable being is to be able to evaluate good reasons from bad reasons, reasons that are truthful and align with reality, and reasons that don't. All right, last definition for you there. Sometimes we talk about being rational or a belief being rational. What does that mean? For your handout, to be rational means to be in accordance with truthful reasoning. To be rational means to be in accordance with truthful reasoning. In other words, if we say that it's rational to believe in Christianity, we're saying that it's in accordance with truthful reasoning to believe in Christianity. Now, we are rational beings, just like our rational God. We have the ability to reason, and that is a gift from him. Right? That's part of what makes us like him, is that we're able to reason just like he is. Now, if someone says that they have blind faith in something, what do you think that means? People might mean different things by that. If they say they have blind faith, what do you think they mean? Complete faith? Okay. Oh, go ahead. You're just cutting off Sonia. Okay. I'll call. Trying to make her feel bad. Go ahead. Oh, you already cut her off. You might as well now. Go ahead with what you're going to say. Trusting without knowing. Trusting without knowing? Okay. Yeah, yeah. What were you going to say, uh, Sonia? Trusting without knowing? Okay. Oh, you stole her thing. Look at that. Um, so... If someone says that they have blind faith, they have irrational faith, basically what they're doing is they're cutting out this. Right? They're cutting out the brain. They're cutting out reason. That's what the brain just represents reason. Um, they're cutting out what's supposed to help them go from comprehension to agreement. Um, 
is that what Christians are supposed to do? No, of course not. Nowhere in Scripture does God um, glorify or exalt blind faith. Nowhere is irrational faith promoted. In fact, God is the one who gave us brains. Those B's, he meant to come between our A's and our C's. He's the one that gave us reason. He's the one that made us reasonable and rational like himself. And we're not supposed to believe every idea that comes across our path. Right? That's part of, of, uh, of, of uh, that's one of the, the blessings that he's given us as human beings. It's the ability to actually think rationally about things that we encounter. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I won't talk a lot about this, but there seems to be uh, today kind of a strange infatuation with or interest in blind faith. Sometimes when you watch Disney movies, um, or maybe you even hear about this in religious context, people say things like, you know, just believe, right? Um, or j- j- just believe even in the face of not having good reasons for it. Um, kind of like, uh, you know, some, uh, like a child's belief in, in Santa Claus. Um, you know, maybe that's a fun thing to believe in, but um, they, they believe in it despite the fact that there's, you know, they, they really don't have any, any good reason for it. Um, that's not the way a Christian is supposed to operate. Um, a Christian, as a rational being, made in the image of a rational God, is supposed to think rationally. God is dishonored by irrationality. Rationality, on the other hand, glorifies God. It reflects his character and nature. Um, and he wants us to use the beautiful reasoning abilities he's given us to know the truth. Uh, listen now, Moreland and Craig put it. They, uh, they said it well. They said, one is called to trust in what he or she has reason to give intellectual assent to. In Scripture, faith involves placing trust in what you have reason to believe is true. Faith is not a blind, irrational leap in the dark. So faith and reason cooperate on a biblical view of faith. What's the, what, what does faith have to do with reason? Faith cooperates with reason on a biblical view of faith um, because faith, or sorry, reason is what helps us discern and discover the truths that we should give our mental agreement to. Does that make sense? So, blind faith is not for the Christian. I wouldn't recommend it for the non-Christian either. All right, here's a tough question. Are you ready? What if reason disproved Christianity? What if Christianity wasn't actually reasonable or turned out to be truly inconsistent with reason? Should you still be a Christian? I'm not just talking about it appearing to be unreasonable. I'm talking about it actually being unreasonable. Should you still be a Christian? Probably not. Hey, so first of all, it's an impossible question. Um, for a number of reasons. Number one, because Christianity is true, um, and it's impossible. Uh, there, there is nothing that could disprove uh, the truth. The question itself is also problematic because on a philosophical level, it may be impossible to justify the use of reason at all, apart from the existence of God, and not only that, but perhaps apart from the existence of the Christian God specifically. But number two, on a practical level, it's also just hard to think of something that reason could prove with certainty that would falsify Christianity. But let's just say somehow that uh, let's just say somehow that, that it could, that maybe we knew for certain that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If you knew for certain, 100% certain, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that means logically it would be impossible for Christianity to be true. Should you still be a Christian? Brandon? Right. Yep. So in other words, if Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, in reality... You shouldn't be a Christian. 
And Paul not only said you shouldn't be a Christian, it's pitiful to be a Christian, right? And there's probably many reasons why that's the case. Any other thoughts on that? So the answer is no. You should not be a Christian if it was actually unreasonable. You as a rational person should not believe it and you certainly shouldn't lean your life on that. Oh, I forgot to draw, I forgot to draw the arrow here. Right? We trust in, in uh, our, our trust is based off of the things that we know to be true and, and agree with, right? Um, reason is one of the most important tools that we have to discern what things we should mentally agree with. Um, the B, the brain, should come between our A and our C. And if Christianity truly is reasonable, and in reality, since it is true, it alone is reasonable, then you should believe in Christianity. But if it were unreasonable, then you shouldn't believe in it. Again, it's an impossible hypothetical, uh, but hopefully you get the point. The point is simply that our reason is one of the tools that God's given us to guide us to the truth, and it should, if we're using reasoning properly, and if our reasoning is truthful, it should guide us to Christianity, right? So let me pause there. Any questions? Does does anyone feel rubbed the wrong way by what I shared? Anyone feel rubbed the wrong way? If you do, that's fine. Yeah, go ahead, Sonia. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, sometimes I think it's, uh, it's, it's construed like that. Uh, Sonia was asked for, uh, for the recording, uh, what type of faith uh, is Jesus talking about when he's talking about the faith of a child, um, right? It's not talking about a foolish faith or a blind faith there. Um, certainly God wouldn't condone foolishness or blindness or irrationality. What he's talking about there is the type of faith, the trust that a child has in a father or a mother to care for them, to love them as parents, right? To guide them, to protect them, to provide for them. That's the type of way in which our faith is supposed to emulate the faith of a child. Uh, it's not supposed to be in, um, in, uh, in low-mindedness, uh, in other words. Yeah, did that answer your question? Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Mm. Yeah, maybe even a child's faith, yeah, in that sense wouldn't be unreasonable, right? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Bill said that, you know, even a child would have previous experiences with a father where they loved and cared for them and, and so trusting them in that, yeah. All right, any other questions on this? Good question, Sonia. Any other questions on faith and reason? What is the Holy Spirit's role in all of this? We haven't talked about him yet, but he's pretty, he's pretty important, huh? What is his role? We don't know, huh? <laughs> Brandon? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, so Brandon was saying he allows us to, to think, uh, to, to reason well. Um, that's probably true. It might even be true in the sense of, of God's common grace, right? I mean, unbelievers are still able to, to think at least with some degree of accuracy about, about some things. Um, they miss the full picture, obviously. Uh, 
But yeah, yeah, I mean, so Holy Spirit, let, let, let me actually ask this. Can reason produce faith? Can reason produce saving trust in Christ? No, it can't, right? At the most, so God is sovereign over this entire process, and he can use reason, and he does oftentimes use our reason, to help people come to believe the truth, right? But as we talked about earlier, simply believing the truth and acknowledging the truth is not enough to save somebody. You have to respond to that, you have to respond to that with faith, saving trust in Christ, personal trust in Christ, reliance on Christ, leaning in Christ, as Spurgeon talked about. I want you to draw a circle over this entire thing on your handout. And just somewhere above, I don't know, maybe say God is sovereign. So in no way is he uninvolved with these previous parts here, just as he is involved in everything and uses means to accomplish his purposes that are certainly taking place in there and the comprehension and the agreement. And when we talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, we recognize that repentance and trust in Christ is the right response to believing the truth claims of the gospel, right? It's the right response. Um, but can we respond that way if we're dead in sin? No, we can't, right? We cannot respond with repentance and faith if we are dead in sin. We're in our, un- in our unrighteousness, in our slavery to sin. We don't respond with true saving faith to our acknowledgement or recognition of the truth claims of Christianity. So no, reason cannot produce faith. Um, God might use it to help us believe or acknowledge uh, the reality of certain truth claims, um, but it doesn't result in someone repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ. In order for that to happen, in order for that to happen, the Holy Spirit has to make that person alive, right? He has to perform a miracle. He has to regenerate them. He has to give them a new heart so that they respond rightly to this message which they believe with saving trust and with repentance and then, of course, with obedience as well. I have a dove on there. The dove is supposed to represent the Holy Spirit. Um, please uh, do not think the Holy Spirit is a dove. He is definitely not a dove. And you can't even really see the dove I just drew. But the dove is supposed to represent the Spirit. And he comes in, and it's through, it's by means of his miraculous work that we go from acknowledging the truthfulness of the gospel to responding with repentance and faith. Does that make sense? So here we go, right, right underneath the dove, Holy Spirit. I spelled spirit wrong. That's nice. Okay. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Uh, now, there's some debate about how this verse should be translated. When it talks about the gift from God, that may be referring here to the entire phrase, which includes salvation through faith, that this entire package, salvation through faith, is a gift from God, in which case our faith is a gift from God too. Um, Even if that's not what that verse is saying here, it's still true. We know from other passages that the Holy Spirit specifically is the one who makes us alive. He's the one that regenerates us and gives us a new heart so that we respond to the truth of the gospel with repentance and faith, right? All right, any questions on the beautiful image, which makes sense of everything for you, on your handout. Any questions on that? All right, well, I have one more question for you. How then do you know that Christianity is true? 
How do you know Christianity is true? That's what this is about, right? We're here to prove Christianity. How do you know that Christianity is true? Sonia? Mm. Yeah, so you, when you read this word, you see things in this world that line up with it. So you see, um, you see uh, how, how truthful the word of God is, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah, thank you, Sonia. So it speaks accurately about your sin. That's good. Anyone else want to answer? How do you know Christianity is true? Brian? Yes, it's reasonable. Yeah. So how about this? I said, how do you know Christianity is true? Thank you guys for answering. What is knowledge? We're defining a lot of terms that we use a lot tonight. Maybe we don't really think about what these mean. But what do you think knowledge is? How would you define it? Don't worry about it, actually. Um, there's a lot more we want to talk about. I'll just give you the definition. What is knowledge? Not, right, you can write it down on your, on your blanks. Knowledge is a true, justified belief. A true, justified belief. That's a classic definition of knowledge and philosophy. It's actually come under scrutiny in recent years. Uh, probably not for very good reason. It's a good definition. Um, I think it still works. Knowledge is a true, justified belief. That means when you say that you know Christianity is true, we're saying that our Christian beliefs are not only correct, we're saying that they're justified. But what justification do we have for believing in Christianity? I heard your guys' answers. Um, how do you think most Christians would respond to that? Do you think most Christians are going to, to give you an argument for the existence of God, a very strong argument for the existence of God, or talk to you about the uh, historicity of the resurrection or the reliability of the New Testament documents or something like that? Is that what most Christians are going to say? No, of course not. So how, how do most Christians know that Christianity is true? What do you think? They don't? No, I think they do. Yeah, Patricia. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, because of what's been done in our lives, right? That's a perfect answer. Um, most people will tell you that they know Christi- or should tell you that Christianity is true because they know Christ, right? They know Christianity is true because they actually know Jesus personally. Is that a good enough reason, you think? Of course it is. (laughs) I don't know what better reason you could possibly have for believing that Christianity is true. I think that that should be our primary reason, our experience of Christ-saving work, as you were talking about, Patricia, um, and then, of course, our fellowship with him, our ongoing relationship with him, constitutes some of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, evidence for us personally that the things we believed are true. Um, I may not know about all of the fulfilled prophecies. I may not know about uh, all of the great arguments for the existence of God uh, that have been made throughout history. Um, But I do know that I was dead. 
Right? I know I was dead, and I know that I'm alive now, and I know that I know God. Um, that in of itself, if you had no other reasons, makes it more reasonable, truly reasonable, for you to believe in Christianity. Um, you don't need to know the other alternatives because you know that this is true. Right? This is true. Um, you know Christ. Now, how useful do you think? So, I just you know, said that this is, this is the primary way that we should know Christianity is true and that all Christians should know that Christianity is true. How useful, though, do you think our personal experience of Jesus is to people who don't know him yet? How useful is our experience of Christ for people who don't know him? Yeah, Sonia? Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's the challenge, right? Is this, for us, we know, we know Christianity is true because we know Christ, but for the people that don't know Christ yet, um, we can share that with them, and our, and our testimonies can be powerful, especially for some people. Uh, but a lot of unbelievers, they, they're going to desire you know, more than that, right? Um, and other, others, uh, others claim, and other religions claim, to have similar experiences that validate their, you know, that, that validate their faith as well. Um, so how can we show others? We know that it's true, but how can we show others uh, that what we believe is true? I've shared this example with some people before. Um, I know my wife Sarah is real. I know she's real because I, I know her personally, right? But if you just met me for the first time and, uh, and you were getting to know me and you thought, wow, this guy, he would never be able to have a wife. There's no way that he's married. And you didn't believe that I was actually married to Sarah. Um, I could tell you, no, I, I know her. I know her personally. Um, and you might, still not, you, you might still not believe me. So if I, wanted to, if I wanted to show you, if I wanted to convince you that my wife exists, uh, I would probably appeal to other evidences, right? I would show you the wedding ring on my finger. I would say, look at this. You know, this, this is proof that I'm, I'm actually married to someone. Or take a look at, you know, the, uh, take, take a look at my kids here, the picture of my kids on my phone. These kids would not exist if it weren't for, for my wife, right? Um, or uh, maybe I'd show, her, show, show them the tattoo on my back that says Sarah in big letters. And I don't, I don't actually have that <laughs> tattoo, by the way. Um, but you, you, would point to, you would point to other things um, external evidences that they can observe, that they can see and think about to help demonstrate to them um, the truthfulness of, uh, of what you're saying, right? Um, now, the wedding ring and the pictures and the kids and the tattoo, those aren't the main ways that I know Sarah is real, right? Um, just in the same way that uh, uh, um, like we were talking about earlier with, with Christianity. Um, but all those other things not only support my faith, uh, uh, not, not only support my belief that Sarah is real, but they're things that I can share with someone else to help them come to see that, uh, that, that Sarah is real, to help them come to believe that too, even if they don't know Sarah personally. Um, so the same is true for us of Christians, of course. The primary reason we know Christianity is true is because we know Christ, uh, but for the unbeliever who doesn't know Christ, um, that's where apologetics comes in. Apologetics deals with the ring. It deals with the pictures on the phone. It deals with the, the kids. Uh, it deals with... Uh, the tattoo on your back, all of the other evidences, all the other things that you can share um, with someone who doesn't know Christ yet, that Christianity really is true. All right, any, any thoughts on that, questions on that? All right, good. You're going to have an opportunity to learn it a little bit deeper. I'm going to give you three minutes, it's not much time, to, uh, to look at your handout, look at your notes, and uh, what I want you to do is when you look at this acronym, CAT, faith is a furry cat, right? I want you to try to maybe close your eyes and imagine these images in as vivid of a way as, as possible and try to associate with them with each of these concepts that we talked about and try to get this picture in your head. I'm going to give you three minutes to do that. Um, 
try to uh, make it as vivid as possible, taste it and smell it if you can. I know that sounds weird, but th- those types of things really help us remember things well. Um, and then uh, what we're going to do after you have a chance to try and internalize some of this is uh, we're, we're going to do an exercise in a moment that gives you an opportunity to, to apply some of this knowledge. So you have three minutes. Try and commit as much of this to memory as you can. All right, that was three minutes. I know it wasn't much time. We're going to take the next two minutes, maybe three, not very long though, to exercise the knowledge that you have. You're going to pick a workout partner. has to be someone other than your spouse. 
And uh, all you're going to do is you're going to take turns. One person is going to explain to the best of their ability off the top of their head the three ingredients of faith. And the next person will explain how reason and the Holy Spirit relate to those ingredients. Now, when I say workout partner, you're supposed to spot each other. That means that if another person is struggling with a part, you kind of prompt them and guide them along to get it. And then you switch, and the other person will do the next two. Got it? All right, you only have two or three minutes, so get together quick. Again, someone not your spouse, ideally someone close to you, and uh, just do this right away. Just someone do these three, someone do those two. Help the other person out too. Be gracious. We're here to help each other, not to, you know, you suck, that was totally wrong kind of thing. And try not to use your notes if you can. Try not to use your notes. I saw you doing that. Uh, furry, uh, furry oh, cat. There you go. There you go. Nice. It wasn't memorable enough, I guess, huh? Uh, I'm kidding. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's good. You did it. All right. Sorry to cut it short, gang. We are out of time. I would recommend you stay next to your person. We're going to do one other thing like this tonight. So you don't have to stay next to your person, especially if they don't smell very good and you don't want to sit there for a long time. But uh, you can stay next to them. It might be helpful. After doing that exercise, any questions that you had as a result of trying to work through this more on your own? Any questions on this? Did everyone get the blanks that we had to fill in? Nice. Any blanks that you're missing? Uh, to discern and discover truth. 
All right, any questions on uh, any of this before we move on, faith and reason? All right, great. I'm very glad to hear that. So, all that said, very long-winded introduction to apologetics. What is apologetics? What is apologetics? The Greek word from which we get apologetics um, comes from apologia. It's a word in Greek that, uh, that means defense. Uh, I'm just trying to think about where I want to put this. I guess I'll, I'll do this here on the board. Apologetics from the Greek word, which means a defense. Gosh, so sorry for my writing there. Um, Peter uses this word in the keystone verse for the field of apologetics. Uh, many of you are familiar with this passage, 1 Peter 3.15. Peter says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, an apologian, that's the Greek word in the text, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He says, Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, when we're talking about apologetics in the context of Christianity, we're talking about defending what? Talking about defending the faith, right? Defending the faith. Now, in light of this verse, What's the sense in which we're defending the faith? It's the sense that we're giving a reason for what we believe. Giving a reason for what we believe. We're sharing justification for our belief. That's what's being asked, perhaps as a malicious attack here in this context, um, in the context of 1 Peter. Um, but, uh, but the idea is that we're giving a reason for this, uh, for our faith. Uh, but lest we think that giving reasons for what we believe is only a defensive measure, we know from our study in the book of Acts that God uses the faithful reasoning of Christians to persuade people to follow him. Listen to this again. We just did this a few weeks ago, Acts 17. Hopefully you remember. Um, this is when Paul is in Thessalonica. It says there was a synagogue at the Jews. And in verse 2 it says, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, quote, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And verse 4 is a very uh, cool verse. It says, Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So in other words, giving reasons for our faith is not just to defend our faith from people attacking it. As we saw in Acts 17, uh, it's, a way to, um, it's a way to help prove the truthfulness of what we're sharing with people who don't recognize the truthfulness of it yet. All right. Uh, so, here's a more formal definition for you. What is apologetics? William Lane Craig's book, Reasonable Faith, he defines it like this. He says, quote, Apologetics, from the Greek word apologia, a defense, is that branch of Christian theology which seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. Seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. And in Craig's book, he talks about the difference between what some people call offensive apologetics and defensive apologetics. He says, quote, offensive apologetics seeks to present a positive case for tr Christian truth claims. Defensive apologetics seeks to nullify objections to those claims. Both offensive and defensive apologetics are important. Oftentimes they can be mixed. I'm going to paraphrase an example he gives uh, in the book or some of the examples that he gives in the book. But an example of offensive apologetics would be to prove that God exists for instance, um, whereas a defensive apologetic would be to respond to the claim that God doesn't exist because there's so much evil in the world or something like that. Um, a mix of both offensive and defensive apologetics would be to respond to the objection that God doesn't exist because there's so much evil in the world 
by, uh, by making a positive truth claim that the fact that there's evil in the world is evidence that God exists because without God there can't be such a thing as good and evil in the first place, right? So oftentimes they can be, they can be mixed as well. In short, here's what you're going to fill on the, on the blank. Apologetics is giving reasons for our faith. Apologetics is about giving reasons for our faith. Okay, so is apologetics useful? You're all nodding your heads yes. I hope you believe it's useful, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Yeah, William, did you have a question? Yeah, if it's used in the right manner. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And that's what Peter says, too. He says to use it to, uh, to give a reason for what you believe with gentleness and respect, right? That's the manner in which we're supposed to do our apologetic work. All right, what is apologetics useful for? What is it useful for? Let's use our beautiful picture. Apologetics. Giving reasons for our faith is useful right here, right? The main use of apologetics should be to increase or to gain agreement where it doesn't exist on the truth claims of the Christian faith. So, Apologetics has a different impact for believers, obviously, than it does for unbelievers. What is the impact for believers? It strengthens the faith you already have. So for believers, apologetics should help strengthen the faith you already have. I have a little bar chart here. Your agreement with the truth claims gets stronger. And of course, as your agreement with the truth gets stronger, your trust in God should also increase as well. Um, and everything else that comes with your trust in God. Yeah, yeah, so, and, and first of all, to circle those bar charts above, um, above, and uh, just make a little mark that this is uh, believers. This is the impact of apologetics for believers. It should increase your agreement with the truth claims of the faith. And then, of course, the more your agreement with the truth increases, the more your trust in God should also grow. Um, obviously, if you're a Christian, you already have reasons to believe that Christianity is true. As we talked about minimally, you know Christ, which is one of the greatest reasons someone could have for knowing that Christianity is true. Um, but obviously, the more justification you have, the more confident you may be, um, the, more con- the more convinced in your mind uh, you will be that these things are true, and the more solidified you are in your agreement with the truth, uh, the stronger your trust should be, and as a result, the stronger your obedience should be, Right? Um, the, more that you, uh, the more that you trust in God and the more that you are convinced of the, of, of the truth of his word, the greater joy you will experience because you will uh, have a greater sense of the reality of the great promises uh, that we have in Christ, the greater hope you will have of the future, the more diligent you will be to share the gospel with the lost because 
uh, the, the more the reality of, of, of their situation, of what God's word says is impressed upon your hearts, the more you will, you will trust God because you will, you will truly uh, recognize that what the scriptures say about him is true. The more your confidence in that increases, the more your trust in him and obedience to him and desire to glorify him will increase. Um, so it's good all the way around. And, uh, and I hope that that happens for you over the next several weeks uh, as you see uh, even more reasons to be confident uh, that the truth claims you agree with as a Christian are really true. I hope that that uh, increase in your trust uh, in Christ and all of the, all of the things that result from that um, also, uh, also takes place. Um, it can be helpful too for Christians because there might be times when maybe your personal experience or, or walk with the Lord is waning. You don't have as strong of a sense of, uh, of his presence, of your fellowship with him. Um, or maybe there's even a time in your, in your faith, uh, if you haven't experienced already, maybe in the future where you will doubt uh, the things that you believe, right? And that's when having um, other objective arguments and evidences that don't depend on your experience can be uh, a helpful source of stability for you. God can use those to help keep you strong and standing in your faith. And maybe if you never struggle with that, you might have a brother or sister in Christ that struggles with that at some point. You can, you can have other things to, to share with them too to help, help boost their confidence in the fact that, yes, these things that we believe as Christians really are true, right? They really are true. Now, what's the impact for unbelievers? Unbelievers don't have faith in Christ, right? Their hearts are dead. Unfortunately, word in their clip art did not have an image of a dead heart. Um, they only had a broken heart. But it's good enough, I think. There you go. Unbelievers have a dead heart. They don't have trust in Christ. So what's the impact of apologetics for them? Reasoning about the truth claims of the Christian faith to bring them to what? Agreement with those claims? They don't agree with them. And if they agree with those claims, it should, it should help persuade them to trust in Christ. That's what the dotted line is. Obviously, it can't produce faith, but it should draw them towards faith, right? It should be compelling for them. You can circle this part, by the way, and just make a little mark that this is for unbelievers. should be compelling for them. Is apologetics necessary, or do we just need to share the gospel with people? Craig's answer was great uh, to this. He said, it is necessary whenever someone has questions or objections to the gospel. <laughs> right? If you share the gospel with them, they understand the truth claims of the faith, they agree with those claims, and they repent and believe, no apologetics necessary. Right? You don't need it for them. But if you share the truth claims of the gospel and they comprehend it, they understand it, but they don't agree with it, right? they have objections, they have questions, then apologetics is necessary. Right? Then we've got to use the reasoning, the gift of reasoning that God's given them to help them come to see, to help them come to agree with the gospel that we've just shared with them. Obviously, that will not produce faith. The Holy Spirit's going to have to regenerate their heart. Um, but this is one of the means, this is part of the process that God uses to bring people to faith, persuading them of the truth, and then making them alive so that they repent and believe. Uh, Craig shared an example that stuck with me. I'm going to change the example uh, to uh, um, and what I'm going to share with you. But you can imagine what it would be like as a Christian if you're walking down the street and a Muslim is standing there handing out tracts. And uh, you stand there and you talk with him for five minutes and he communicates the main message of Islam, explains, uh, gives, explains um, how to convert to Islam, and, uh, and that if you don't become a Muslim, um, you're probably going to be spending eternity in hellfire. Um, he can tell you that, kind of explain, explain the message to you, and then uh, when you walk away or when he walks away, 
your response to that is probably going to be, oh, that was weird, right? And, uh, and you're probably just going to disregard it, right, and go on with your day. Why? Because you don't believe the things that he shared. You might understand what he shared, but you don't believe it, right? You don't agree with him. You don't think that he's right. Um, and if you don't believe with what he just shared with you, you're not going to convert to Islam. <laughs> you're not going to recite the Shahada, right, and, uh, and, be, and, act, upon, um, and, and act upon what he said because you don't, you don't agree with it, right? And yet uh, I've been uh, convicted in thinking about how much of my evangelism has been just like a Muslim doing that to someone, right? For someone who's not a Christian, they walk up to us, maybe we have a short interaction with them. We tell them what the gospel is. If they understand the gospel, which is harder to do in a brief period of time today than you might expect because people have so much baggage and they're interpreting what we're saying through a worldview that might make it difficult for them to understand what the gospel is to begin with. But let's say they understand what the gospel is. You're able to communicate that clearly. If that's all you do and walk away, it's probably not going to be much different for them than it is for the Muslim who comes to share the message of Islam with you. Right? There's no reason for you to believe what they share, what, what, there's no reason for them to believe the gospel that you shared with them. They don't know what's true like you do. And so, yeah, they're probably not going to respond to that with repentance and faith, right? Probably not. Um, and so, for me, you know, one of the realizations uh, that, uh, that I had, unfortunately, later than I would like, um, is that if we share the gospel with someone, that, that's a good thing. We're always thankful for the opportunity to do that. Um, but if we have the opportunity to do more, there is more that we can do for an unbeliever. Right? We're not limited just to telling people what the good news. God, man, Christ response. Um, God is holy, man is sinful, Christ died for our sins, he rose from the dead, and we respond by repentance and faith. Right? We're not limited to just helping them comprehend those truth claims. Um, we also have the ability to reason with them. They're reasonable people, we're reasonable people. We have the ability to reason with them and help them come to agree with the truth claims that we shared with them. And as we see in the book of Acts, as we see multiple times, that is one of the means that God uses to help them come to agree with the truth. And then by his grace, if God is, uh, is, is saving them, um, he will also make them alive by his spirit, and they'll respond to that message um, with repentance and faith. Right? So this is an essential part of, uh, of how God, who is sovereign over this entire process of evangelism and of apologetics, um, this, is, uh, this is all part of how God moves in someone's life to bring them to a saving grace in him. Um, I'll make one personal appeal here before moving on. We, have, we all have people in our life that don't know Christ, right? We all have people in our life maybe that we've shared the gospel with before and who maybe even understand what the gospel, they comprehend the truth claims, but they don't agree with them, right? Um, we're, not, uh, we have, we're not at the end of the line with them yet. Right? We never are. Um, obviously, we continue, can, 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 sorry, can continue to clarify the truth with them right? if they don't really comprehend it well. Um, but we also have the ability to reason with them. This is part of what God uses to bring people to a saving grace in him. Um, and, uh, and so, um, hopefully, in seeing that, it'll give you an incentive to actually take apologetics seriously, right? to, uh, to, to learn the things that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks, to study this more on your own. Um, because if you love them, you not only want to help them comprehend the gospel, you want, them to, help, you want to help them see that it's true, right? And there are ways that, uh, that, that you can do that. Um, you want to learn these things out of your love for them. Uh, apologetics, kind of summarize things, is one of the means that God uses to help move people from comprehension to agreement. It's one of the means that God uses to help move people from comprehension to agreement. Of course, he's the one that's sovereign over this entire process.
All right. Um, we didn't get through nearly as much as I wanted to tonight, and I'm very sorry about that. We'll pick up next week um, with, that, with some of the new content. Uh, before we close, we're going to do uh, one more internalization, um, and, then, uh, and then we're going to exercise that again. So take three minutes, actually two minutes, because there's less to learn. Take two minutes, review what apologetics is and why it's useful for believers and unbelievers, and then we'll do something with your workout partner again. But that's what you're going to try to commit to memory, what apologetics is and why it's useful for believers and unbelievers. You have two minutes to learn all of that. So enjoy. All right, get together with your workout partner. And what you're going to do is you're each going to briefly define what apologetics is. Just say it. It's about giving reasons for our faith. Okay? And then one person's going to explain. One person's, I just want you to say it with your lips. And then one person's going to explain the benefit of apologetics for believers. And another person's going to explain the benefit for unbelievers without notes. Turn your sheet over. You can spot the other person, guide them along if they need help. Two minutes.
Are you using your sheet again? Tisk tisk tisk. You can ask. That's fine. Huh? Oh, good job. Very good. I'll get some stickers. I'll break out the stickers for you. Uh, there you go. <laughs> All right, workout's over. Hope it was a good exercise for you. Hope you're stronger after that. Graham has a question. Oh, that's great. Uh-huh. So for believers, Apologetics, we already agree with the truth claims of the Christian faith, but apologetics should help increase our confidence in those truth claims, right? And of course, as our agreement with the truth increases, our trust in God and His Word should also increase. Yeah, good question. Yeah. There you go. And it should make you more confident in sharing the gospel with others too, right? Because you're more equipped to help demonstrate to them that what you're sharing is true. Any other questions after doing the exercise? So we all now understand that faith is a furry cat, right? That faith simply defined as trusting God and His Word, but the ingredients of faith are comprehension, agreement, and trust, C-A-T, um, and, uh, and that reason is a gift from God. It's a tool that God's given us, one of many tools that God's given us to help us discern and discover the truth, right? It's what, help, it's, it's what should help move us from comprehension to agreement if what we're comprehending is the truth, right? It should help move us from C to A, and that's why B goes well in between A and C. Hopefully it's easy to remember. And then, of course, apologetics is a defense of the truth claims 
of the Christian faith. It's giving reasons for our faith, which is helpful for Christians because it ought to increase our agreement with those truth claims and increase our trust in God as well. And it's also helpful for unbelievers because if they don't already agree with the truth claims of the Christian faith, we can help reason uh, in, through reasoning with them through apologetics and giving reasons for our faith. God can use that to help them not only agree with the gospel and believe the gospel, but by his grace, uh, possibly persuade them to repent and believe, to make them alive, to regenerate them, and to cause them to respond to that message with repentance and faith. Does that make sense? All right, very good. I'm going to give you one example just to whet your appetite, and then we're going to close. Um, we didn't really get to dive into the apologetics tonight, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, the, and I, I'm, I also apologize because I realize I talked too much. Um, we only did half of the page. Well, one page, there were two pages to this. Um, we will do that next week. We'll have to move more quickly, otherwise we'll never get done. Um, but I, I'm sorry for talking, talking so much. Um, I want to give you one example just to kind of excite you about this or to whet your appetite. If you have a friend who's an atheist or maybe an agnostic and you share the gospel with them and they say, you know, that's great, I understand it, but, you know, I just don't believe it, Kirk, because I, I don't believe that God exists, right? I don't agree with the things that you're saying. Um, there are so many ways that you can uh, help prove to someone that God exists. You can help them, help them, see, um, help them see that truth. I'll, I'll give you one example again just to kind of kind of whet your appetite for this. Uh, if someone says they don't believe in God, you can ask them if they believe that the universe has always been around. If they say that the universe has always existed, there are many ways that you can show somebody that that's not possible. There's scientific evidences that you can appeal to. There's philosophical evidences that you can appeal to. We're going to talk about this argument more next week, but one way that you can help someone understand the universe couldn't have always existed is by explaining to them that if an infinite number of days preceded this one, we never would have gotten to this one. An infinite task cannot be completed. An infinite number of steps cannot be traversed. The same way you can't count down from infinity to zero, you can't count up from zero to infinity, the universe couldn't have counted down from infinity to get to this day. It never would have gotten to this day. And there's a great example that you can use to help show that to somebody. Once they see that it's logically impossible for the universe to have always existed, the universe had a beginning, then the next question is, did something start the universe or did nothing start the universe? Right? Those are the only two options. It was either something or it was nothing. Um, we know that it can't be nothing because nothing, by definition, is everythingless. It's tasteless, it's touchless, it's smellless, it's soundless, it's powerless, it's abilityless. That includes the ability to start universes. Right? Nothing can do nothing. Nothing can't do anything. Rather, that's a better way to put it. Nothing is abilityless. Nothing couldn't have started the universe. It must have been something. Now, the argument gets you to the fact that something started the universe, that they acknowledge that the universe had a beginning, which is very, very difficult to deny. And if they recognize that it must have been something or nothing, but it couldn't have been nothing, then they, that necessarily entails that something must have started the universe. And then when we think about, well, what must the something be? We can learn quite a bit about the something by simply considering the nature of the universe that created. Right? The universe is all of time, all of space, all of matter, all of physical reality. Then whatever created those things, whatever started those things, couldn't have been bound by those things itself, right? Because it existed prior to them. It couldn't be bound by space, it couldn't be bound by time, and it couldn't be a material being. It must be timeless, it must be spaceless, and it must be non-physical, immaterial. It must also be extremely powerful if it created the universe out of nothing, and it must also be uncaused or self-existent because you can't have an infinite regress of causes. And furthermore, if it's a timeless being, that means it must also be a changeless being Right? You can't change without at least two moments of before and after. And if it's a timeless being, it must also be an eternal being. Because uh, there is no point, there is no, uh, there, there is no instance prior to its existence. So just by thinking about what this something must be, by considering the way the universe is, 
you get yourself to a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, extremely powerful, uncaused or self-existent, unchangeable, eternal being. Right? Very close to a lot of people consider God to be. Now, that's not a personal being yet. We're not all the way to, to who God is. But you can get to a personal being too. Because if you ask yourself, um, was this something either a personal being or a non-personal being? Those are the only two op- options, right? It's either a person or it's not a person. If it's not a person, then that means whatever conditions brought the universe into, it, into existence must have always existed. They must have remained unchanged for all of eternity. And if that's the case, then that means that the universe must have always existed too. But we know that that's not the case. The universe had to have a beginning. It couldn't have always existed. That means the conditions that brought the universe into existence couldn't have always existed as well. It couldn't have been an impersonal being. Um, Does a personal being make any more sense? Well, that is the only option that we're left with, so it it has to be a personal being no matter what. But it does make more sense that it's a personal being too. How could an unchanged, eternal being bring a temporal, uh, bring a, a, a cause and a temporal effect? How could an eternal, unchanging being give rise to a universe that's not eternal? The only way to explain that is if that being made a choice, if that being made a decision. And whenever you talk about choice, whenever you talk about decision, you're talking about will. You're talking about volition. You're talking about a person, right? And so now we not only have a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, extremely powerful, self-existent, unchangeable, eternal being, now we have a personal being. Some people call that being God, right? That's a good word for that being. So there you go for your atheist friend. One simple argument. We'll learn that one next week. Hey, if we don't, well, I say simple. There's a, you, 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 will, you will be able to do that yourself. That's, again, that's the goal of this course um, is, is to be able to equip you with arguments like that. And we're going to spend time in class learning it so that you're able to, to share that with other people. Um, that's, uh, uh, there's, there's many different ways that you can prove the existence of God. That's just one. And I share that with you to kind of whet your appetite to see, wow, we really do have good, good ways to reason with unbelievers to help them come to agree with the truths that we share with them. Um, and that's not just for the fact that God exists. Um, that's also for the fact that Christianity is true and Jesus really is who he claimed to be. All right, any questions on anything we've talked about tonight? Any questions? All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Again, sorry for not getting through as much of it as we want to tonight. Father, we're so thankful that you, by your grace, have been sovereign over bringing each of us uh, in our lives into a saving relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for the people who shared the gospel with us, who enabled us to comprehend uh, the truth claims of the gospel. Thank you so much, Father, for, in your sovereignty, causing us to come to agree with those truth claims, to believe in those truth claims. And thank you, by your Holy Spirit, for making us alive, for causing us to respond to you in repentance and trust in Christ. We ask, Father, that as we study apologetics over the next several weeks and all of the reasons that we can give to, uh, in, in support of our faith, to defend our faith, and we pray that you would increase our faith as a result, that you would increase our confidence in the truth of your word and the truth of your gospel, and that you would increase our trust in you as a result and make us more obedient. Um, we pray that you would help equip us to better minister to all of the lost people in our lives that we love and that we care about, uh, that you would help equip us to reason well with them and to help them come to see the truthfulness of the gospel too. Uh, We pray that you would do this out of your love for them and out of your love for us because we care about these people. And we pray that you would do it so you would be glorified in us uh, reaching people well um, uh, for your namesake and so you can be reflected in our ministry to people. 
Uh, all these things, Lord, we, uh, we, ask, we ask you to do because we know that we're, we're completely dependent on you to do them. Um, we pray that you would for your glory. It's in your name. Amen.